If you travel to Rome, one of the holy sites that you'll have the opportunity to visit is the Scala Sancta, or the Holy Stairs. Now, the Roman Catholic Church claims that these were the very steps that Jesus climbed when he went up to his trial before Pilate. Legend suggests that Constantine's mother, St. Helena, had the stairs moved from Jerusalem to Rome in AD 326. Now, it is said that faithful Catholics can climb the 28 stairs and recite prayers with sincerity and receive indulgences. Now, remember, the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that a Christian with remaining sin goes to purgatory for, for a time of suffering and cleansing of that remaining sin. And so what an indulgence does, an indulgence enables you to reduce the time that you're going to have to spend in purgatory, or you can work to reduce the time that a loved one would have to, to spend in purgatory and enable them to go to heaven more quickly. So uh, a Catholic could travel to Rome, climb these stairs, recite the prayers with a repentant heart, and reduce the time in purgatory. Now, we've been talking about Martin Luther because he was the catalyst or the one that sort of set in motion the Reformation. While Martin Luther was a young monk, he was sent to Rome in 1510, and he was so excited about the opportunity to see the holy city. In fact, when he got to Rome, he fell on his knees, and he, he cried out, Hail, holy Rome! And while in the city, he immersed himself in spiritual pursuits. He, he went to visit uh, uh, the graves of the popes and, and of martyrs, and he viewed many of the holy relics that the, that the Catholic Church had. He, he viewed a rope that was allegedly a part of the rope that Judas had hanged himself with, and a chain that was allegedly the one that St. Paul w was chained with. Um, he, he visited all these sites, and in this way, it was a chance for him to receive grace from God and to try to do his heart good. And so Luther took advantage of all of the opportunities that were before him, including, of course, the Scala Sancta. Luther climbed the Scala Sancta on his knees, kissing each step. There were 28 steps, and each time he would pray, kiss the step, and move up and progress to the next step. Now, what Luther was hoping is that he could achieve favor with God, that, that as he did this, that, that he would be able to, to help his own soul. And also, later he would say that he hoped to, to see his grandfather freed from, from purgatory. So would Luther discover God's favor as he climbed these stairs and as he went around viewing these church, the church's relics? Would he receive God's favor by these uh, actions? Well, it leaves us with a bigger question, a more important question. How do you find God's favor? How do you do that? How do you make sure that you're right with God? Well, this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2 as we try to think about those questions together. Of course, we're continuing our series entitled Reformation because this year commemorates or marks the 500th year since the Reformation started. And we're thinking about how the truths of Scripture uh, that, that the Reformation recovered still impact the church today. Now, Ephesians was written, of course, by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, maybe to surrounding or nearby churches as well. Let's look at Ephesians 2, uh, beginning in verse 1 together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created by Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this passage, we see that God gives new life through grace alone. God gives new life through grace alone. So how does God give new life through grace alone? Well, our text is going to give us three truths about receiving new life through the grace of God. First, apart from grace, you are hopelessly dead in sin. Apart from grace, you're hopelessly dead in sin. In verse 1, Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and your sin. And he uses two words here just to express the idea of comprehensiveness. You're dead because you're guilty. Now, Paul is describing their former condition because he's writing to the believers in Ephesus. So he's describing their previous position. Before they came to know Jesus, they were dead in sin. Being dead spiritually means being separated from God. Remember that God is the giver of life. To be separated from him is to be spiritually dead. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see evidence of spiritual death all around us. There's just a general apathy toward the things of God. There's evidence of of death. We have no longing often for for the Lord. There's evidence of spiritual death. We see immorality everywhere. We see people stealing and embezzling. We see all sorts of abuse and, and, and all kinds of immorality. Yes, moral bankruptcy. Evidence of spiritual death death surrounds us. As one commentator put it, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the difference, Paul is suggesting, between a living person and a cadaver, a dead body. You see, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is the difference between being alive and being dead. That's what Paul is saying. Now, sometimes we have a tendency in America to think that there was a golden age, like, like maybe in the 1940s or the 1950s when sort of Judeo-Christian morals sort of reigned. But friends, remember, the sin of segregation had infected our nation. And what we see as we, we reflect on that is there is no golden age. You see, this side of heaven, every age will be infected by sin. This side of heaven... Evidence of spiritual death will be present always, manifest in different ways. You see, sin is a decaying agent that eats at every human heart. It's a decaying agent that separates us from God, and it makes us dead, separated from God. Verse 2, he says you were like a dead man walking. He says the prince of the power of air, who, who is Satan. He's the leader of, of all evil forces. You can, you can look more uh, at Satan and his leadership of, of spiritual powers and domains in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We, we see Paul saying here that Satan's at work leading those who are, who are disobedient. 
And he, Paul says, you were going right along with the world. In other words, you held the, the world's moral standards. The world said this and this and this, and you were right there with them. You were cheering them on, in a sense. In fact, Paul says, you were chasing after the devil himself. You were at his heels. You were doing just what he wanted you to do. Now, one of the genres in novels and, and movies today is sort of the zombie uh, genre. This is the idea of dead people who've been reanimated either through magic or science or, or some other uh, means. So, so you've got these, in, in these movies, you've got these dead people walking around and, 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 and doing things, but they're dead. They're zombies. And this is what Paul is saying here. You may be walking around and carrying out various activities, but understand, apart from Christ, you are dead. You're a zombie. You're a dead man walking. In verse 3, Paul includes himself now and, and his fellow Jews in, in what he's saying. He said, we all lived a life of rebellion against God. Now, Paul is making a pretty powerful statement. Remember that Paul was a Pharisee, and not just a Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Well, what did Pharisees get right? They followed the law, every bit of the law, every little bit. They strived to, to follow so that they could claim they were, they were righteous, Paul, having been a former Pharisee, says, you know what? I lived with a rebellious heart toward God, just like all of you. And what we see here is that sin is universal. Every one of us is guilty. Every one of us has been infected and ruined by sin. There aren't any hearts who haven't been. We've, Paul says in verse 3, we've lived according to our passions, to our sinful desires. We've been driven by the desires of our body and by unrighteous thinking, by impure thinking, by, by thoughts that are, are wrong. And then in verse 3, Paul says something that's, that's very, very serious. He says, we were all objects of wrath. He says, by our very nature, our sinful, unregenerate nature, at our core, we're rebellious against God. In essence, by our nature, Paul says that we were God's enemies. Now think about this for a second. God is completely holy there's no sin in him, and, and he created us. He made us to follow him and, and to walk with him and to live a life that honors him. But we've rebelled against that. We've gone our own way. We, we do what we want. And in a very real sense, we're taking part in a sort of cosmic rebellion against God, saying to God, joining with, with all of the other people here, you can tell me what you want, God, but you know what? I'll do as I please we don't like to think in those terms, do we? But that's exactly what's happening. And every one of us is guilty of that. Every one of us is guilty of shaking our finger in God's face and saying, you say this, but I don't care. I'll go my own way. I'll do what I want. And Paul says, because we are enemies of God, because we have shaken our fist in the face of a holy God, we are objects of wrath. Together, he says, with, with all people, with all of humanity. You see, God is completely pure. And he can't ignore sin. God's response to sin is judgment. It's always judgment. For him to wink at sin or to say, oh, it's no big deal, it would be to compromise his very nature. It, it can't be done. It's not possible. Sin can't be overlooked because God is blazingly pure. That's who he is. That's his essence. So we've seen that all people are hopelessly dead in sin, facing God's judgment. Second, by grace, you are given eternal life. 
By grace you're given eternal life. In verse 4, Paul is kind of making a contrast. We've seen verses 1 through 3 that all people are dead in sin, facing God's wrath. But now in verse 4, we see two words, and they are beautiful words. Dead in sin. But look at how verse 4 begins. But God. What good news. God didn't leave us dead in our sin. God didn't leave us alone, broken, ruined by sin. No, what did he do? He, he acted. He moved. He cared. What powerful words of hope but God. So look at the contrast. It's powerful. Sin, death, judgment, God's mercy, God's infinite love and salvation. These are set against the, the filth the rebellious heart. And what it does is it makes the grace of God all the more brilliant. Paul wants us to see and understand how beautiful the grace of God is, how magnificent His grace is. He says here in verse 4 that He is rich in love, that His mercy is, is powerful. And here Paul puts our sin and God's mercy together. And this is a proper understanding of who God is. He is holy and He hates sin but he loves and longs to show mercy. He loves us in the midst of our sinfulness. Look in verse five. God demonstrated this love for us and that while we were dead in sin, he he worked for our salvation. Romans 5, 8 says it like this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse five, Paul says, God made us alive, made us alive in Christ. He says, you're together with with Christ. So just as Christ was raised from the dead, so also you are raised from spiritual death and given new life. So you are saved and you're rescued from God's wrath and you're given new life by God's grace. How beautiful is that? To say that we're saved by God's grace is to acknowledge that we do not deserve the mercies of God It's to acknowledge that it's Christ's work on the cross that saves us and not anything that we can do on our own. We're saved because of what God did, not what we can do. Verse 6, Paul says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavens. What does this mean? God gave us a new citizenship. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then you're a citizen of heaven. Paul communicates this as if it's a settled fact, and here's why. It is. If you truly know the Lord Jesus, if you've truly put your faith in Jesus, your citizenship in heaven is a settled fact. Just waiting for you to to leave this life, God will take you to glory. If you belong to him, he'll, he'll never let you go. By our union with Christ, we share a heavenly citizenship. What a wonderful truth. Now, Luther had been taught that if he did his best, if he just did his best, then he would receive God's grace. You see, to receive the grace of God in the church, Luther followed the sacramental system. A person must merit the grace of God to to receive eternal life. So so a little baby is is baptized, and through the sacrament, the baby is forgiven of sin and receives new life. And this little uh, one who is baptized can begin to earn the graces that are needed to attain eternal life. Receiving the Eucharist. What, what we're going to do today is we observe the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, but receiving the Eucharist is critical. The, the church taught that when one drinks of the cup and eats of the bread, that grace was infused or given to them. So 
the more times I go to Mass or the more times I observe the Eucharist, the more grace I get. Now imagine an empty glass. Had a glass, it's empty. And when an infant's baptized, you put a little bit of water in the bottom of the cup. And then a person is confirmed, we put a little more water in the bottom of the cup. If the person commits a mortal sin, a, a very serious sin, he loses his saving grace and must observe the sacrament of penance. And what this is is expressing regret for sin, going to a priest and confessing the sin, and then receiving some sort of an order for a, a good act to, to, to do or to follow. And then if you do that, you receive grace. You get water in your cup. And if a person observes the sacraments enough and manages to avoid doing enough bad things, and you die with the cup of water full. You made it. You're going to heaven. But if the cup of water isn't full, and you didn't quite get enough grace, well, then you're purgatory bound, and you're going to be there for a while until you get things right. Or, if there was an unconfessed mortal sin, you'll go to hell. Now, Luther agonized over this. This wasn't for him just a theological discussion or talk. It gripped his soul. He feared that he wasn't being good enough to please a God who was holy. And and he struggled with his own sinfulness and the, the holiness of God. And it caused him agony upon agony upon agony. Luther was fearful that he just simply couldn't merit eternal life. So we've seen that by grace, we've been given eternal life. Third, because of grace, your life has great purpose. Because of grace, your life has great purpose. In verse 7, God's purpose of salvation is given here. Of course, our salvation is meant to bring us incredible blessing and benefit, but God has an even grander purpose. As when, when He saves us, He desires to put the infinite riches of His grace on display. In other words, he desires that our lives bring him glory for all eternity. And in Ephesians 1, 7, Paul also likens God's grace to great riches, just like he does here in in verse 7. So our lives are meant to be something like monuments of God's grace, of God's work. In verses 8 and 9, Paul explains how God puts his his salvation or uh, how he puts his grace on display through our salvation. Paul reiterates what he's already said in verse 5. We are saved by God's grace. The verb here, for you have been saved, is a perfect tense verb. What that means is it's pointing back to a specific event in the past, like an event that is completed. And so when Paul's talking about, and uh, here in verse 8, you have been saved, he's saying this is a completed event. It's done. It's finished. You have been saved. There was a point in time when you received the grace of God. So when we're saved, God saves us completely. We call that justification. And once saved, we begin to to try to become more like Jesus. We begin to grow in our faith. That's called sanctification, the process by which we grow and mature in our faith. Justification is a point in time, not a process. Sanctification is a process. We're saved at the moment we put our faith in Jesus. We're saved at that moment. When we call out to God in simple faith, we receive His grace. 
that undeserved and infinitely valuable gift. Paul reiterates that this is not something we can earn. It's not something that we can achieve by our own merit. It is God's gift. Now think about getting married. If you're married or if you uh, have been married, you can think back to to, to that wedding day. Maybe the the preacher presented you and said, I present uh, to you Mr. and Mrs. fill in the blank, and it was a done deal. You were married. It was one time. You don't have to check back in at the courthouse every year to renew your marriage license, do you? I'm surprised because because that might be another good source of revenue, but at any rate, your marriage is a done deal. It's complete. You, you get married. It's a legal fact. You're married one time. That's like justification. When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, he saves us. It's a, it's a one-time deal. We don't have to renew our, our salvation. We don't have to do this or that or fill in some paperwork every year and submit that. No, it's nothing like that. We put our faith in Jesus, and he saves us, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. You're his, a one-time occurrence. Just like we would say it would be silly to get married over and over and over again. Like we, we have to go, through, well, we were married last year, but it's, it's about that time again this year. That's silly. And so when we come to know Jesus, it's a one-time deal. But if your marriage is going to work, you don't get married and then put it on cruise control because that's not really going to be good. What do you do? If, if your marriage is going to work and, and be strong and successful, you nurture your marriage. You pour into your spouse and you love your spouse and you m- mature in your love together. That's kind of like sanctification. You see, sanctification is where we grow in Christ and we mature, and it's a process with ups and downs, with, with some, some good. We have periods of time we're really growing and other times maybe where we're struggling a bit. That's sanctification. That has nothing to do with our salvation except this, that if this occurred, then inevitably this occurs. That is to say that if justification has occurred, then inevitably sanctification will occur. So that if a person says, well, hey, I know Jesus, and then over the course of their life there's never any change, better go back to here because something didn't happen here that needed to happen. Justification, a one-time event, sanctification process of maturing in our relationship with Christ. Verse 9, Paul says it's not by works. He wants to reiterate that again. You can't do this. So going to church is not going to save you. Walking down an aisle is not going to save you. Being baptized is not going to save you. Being moral is not going to save you. That's what Paul wants us to understand. These can all be man-made ways that we think we can make ourselves right with God. But none are going to work. Why? Because none of them deal with the fundamental problem. None of those man-made things that we try deal with the fundamental problem. None will cover your sin before a God who is holy. So you can be as good a person as you can possibly be. You can be as religious a person as you can possibly be. But none of these I don't care how good you are. If you're Mother Teresa good, I don't care how good you are. None of these erase your sin. They don't deal with the fundamental issue. Your sin is still there. You're not saved by being good, by doing these things. You're saved by the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone, His grace. In this way, Paul says, nobody can brag about saving themselves. Salvation is all of God. 
It's his gift. We can't save ourselves. Now think about when you were a kid and your parents used to get you Christmas gifts or, or maybe today your, your parents give you Christmas gifts. Now I'm going to guess that when your parent gives you a Christmas gift, they just give you a gift because they love you. Or when you were younger, because they loved you. They gave you that because they loved you. You didn't have to work and go to their house and like work for six weeks so they would give you a Christmas gift. Now you get a job. You work all week and get a paycheck at the end of the week. But see, here's the problem. In our relationship with God, sometimes as people, we think, hey, I've got to go to work for God and I've got to try to earn my way to Him. But when reality is that God gives it, God gives salvation and His grace as a gift out of His love. Not because we've earned it and put in a full week's work, but because He's a good God who loves, who, who rescues. Now in verse 10, Paul says that we're created by God for a purpose. Now, in Psalm 19.1, the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. But what Paul is saying here in verse 10 is that our lives are meant to declare His glory, that our lives are meant to be like a masterpiece that reveals His grace. You see, once we come to know Jesus' justification, then we're supposed to be changing and becoming more like Jesus so that people look at our lives and go, look at that, look at that woman. And you can tell there's something different about her. Look at that man. You can tell he's a, he's a man who cares for others, a man who's honest. You see, our lives are meant to be masterpieces that point people to God, that help people see who God is, Just to see His grace in action. Verse 10, Paul says, we're, we're His craftsmanship. We're, we're created in Christ. In other words, when, when we put our faith in God, we were made brand new, new people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that. This helps us understand how significant being born again really is. And Paul says in verse 10, we're created by God for good works. But I want you to hear this. We are not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. When we're saved, when we're justified, God saves us so that we live a life of good works, a life that honors him and pleases him. And Paul says here, before the beginning of time, God planned out good works for you to carry out. Think about that. If you know him, God already has a plan for things that he wants you to do, for things that he wants you to accomplish, good works that that he wants you to live out. So in Christ, we live a life of purpose, a life of loving others and serving others, of, of striving to make Christ known of living out those good deeds that God designed us for. Oh, life for the Christian is full of purpose. Full of purpose. So because God gives new life through faith alone, let's consider the implications of this for our lives and and also in our church. First, religion will not save you. It won't save you. The world religions tell you to be good, and if you follow uh, their guidelines, you're going to be okay. The cults tell you that follow Follow our rules and and you'll be fine. Liberal Protestantism preaches that you uh, do good works as long as you're loving people and and loving uh, uh, and and caring for people, then you're good. It's, it's, It's no big deal. But religion won't save you. Second, morality will not save you. You may think to yourself, you know what? I'm a good person. I'm a lot better than most everyone I'm around. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I try to be kind to people. I try to do the right thing. The cashier gives me too much money back. I I give it back to her. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. Friend, that's a good thing. But I want you to understand 
that even if you're a moral person, you're still guilty of sin. And your being moral still doesn't deal with your sin before a God who's holy. So, so morality will not save you. Third, human effort will not save you. And one of the, the movements that's really uh, popular today is this self-help movement when, which seeks to kind of achieve a better you. And, and what does self-help do? Often it tells you to look on the inside and within yourself, you can become better. You can become more. But, but I want to tell you, the Bible tells us that our help comes from the outside, not from the inside. I don't need to look more deeply into myself. I need to look to a God who sent his son to rescue. That's where my help comes from. Now, this is not bad news. This is good news. What does this tell me? It tells me that I don't have to do this on my own, that I have a God who cares and who loves and who will help me. What good news is that? So human effort is not going to save forth only God can raise the dead and give new life. None of these take God's holiness seriously. World religions that tell you to do good, cults that tell you to follow their rules, liberal Protestantism that tells you just to love people, self-help movement that tells you to, to make yourself better, moralism, I do good. None of these can make you right with God because none of them take the holiness of God seriously. You see, your sin is so serious that none of these will work. All of these are attempts to set aside the justice of God, but God will not have his justice set aside. You see, to be saved, the justice of God must be satisfied. And in Christianity, the justice of God was satisfied. It happened at the cross. You see, the only way that you can be saved is by the grace of God, by what Jesus did on the cross, because on the cross... Sin was taken seriously, so seriously that the very Son of God gave us life. You see, he took the punishment that we deserve upon himself. And he made a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. God's justice wasn't compromised. God's love and mercy were extended. The cross reveals his great love for you and also his hatred towards sin. Fifth, you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Oh, what wonderful news. You're saved by putting your faith in Jesus, by saying to Jesus, I'm putting my life in your hands. Sixth, once saved, you are meant to live a life of good works. And if you know Jesus or claim to know Jesus and you aren't striving to grow in him and be sanctified and changed, there's really a reason we ought to be asking the question, do I really know him? Did justification really happen? Did, I, did the marriage certificate really get signed? We, we need to be asking those questions. Because once we know him, our heart's drawn to love him. Our heart's filled with love for others. These are, these are the outworkings of, of the spirit in our lives. Seventh. Let's think about this in terms of the church. A faithful church is committed to preaching salvation by grace alone. A faithful church is going to be preaching salvation by grace alone, not works. We're not going to tell you, unless you show up here on Saturday morning and pass out so many of our magazines, you're not going to be right with God. We're not going to say that to you. Why? Because it's not what the scriptures say. What do the scriptures say? Call out to God in faith and receive his grace. And then, of course... Live a life that honors him out of gratitude. Now I want us to travel back in time. The year is 1510. And there 
are those stairs, those 28 stairs, the Scala Sancta. And there young Luther is as a priest, down on his knees. He's climbing those stairs on his knees, kissing each one, and he's reciting the, the Pater Noster, or our, our Father, prayer. Oh, and Luther was hoping that he could earn the favor of God. For he had been taught, if I'll be good enough, if I'll give my best, if I'll give my all, then, then surely God will receive me. But later Luther reflected on the experience and he said that he kept asking himself, who knows whether this is true? Who knows if, if this really makes any difference? What a terrible place to be, to be unsure if God will accept you, to be unsure if you'll go to heaven or, or hell when you die. Now, later Luther would write, we do not depend on our own strength, conscience, experience, person, or works, but we depend on that which is outside of ourselves. That is, on the promise and truth of God, which cannot deceive. You see, Luther finally discovered that he couldn't earn a relationship with God, that he couldn't earn a right standing with God, that it was a gift that only God could give. In reality, sinful humanity, none of us could climb the stairs up to a holy and righteous God. But here is the good news of God's grace. God sent one to descend the stairs and to make a way for us to be rescued. He left heaven and came to us to rescue us. We could never climb to him. But in his love, he descended to us. God gives new life through grace alone. So brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, be grateful that he saved you. Be, be grateful that he's given you new, new life and recognize that he has a purpose for your life. He saved you that you might live a life that points to his grace, that you might be like a monument that, that reveals who he is and what he's like. So live a life of serving and, and, and caring for others. Live a life of, of telling others about Jesus, of, of pouring your life into the body of Christ. Let your life be a monument that points to the beautiful grace of God. For those of you who are here who've never placed your faith in Christ, I want you to understand one day you're going to stand before him. You're going to stand before him as judge. Are you hoping to convince him that, that you're a really nice guy? Is that what you're hoping? Are, are you going to say to him, you know what, I went to church some are you hoping that you can say, well, I did this religious act and that's going to make the gates of heaven swing open? I want you to understand these are damnable lies. You have no hope before the holy and righteous God save one and that is the grace of the Lord Jesus. Have you called out to him in faith? If you have, you're going to know the glories of heaven. If you haven't, there'll be no excuses, no second chances, no do-overs. Today, won't you receive the incredible, marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.